Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today we'll be reading Genesis 38. This seems like it might be a complete interruption in the story of Joseph, but we will figure out later on why this story uh, fits here and is purposeful by the author. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kazib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die, like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat by the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute, since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me to have sex with me? Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want? He replied. She answered, Leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adulamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, Where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to Enaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. 
Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am, because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez, which means breaking out. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zerah, which means scarlet. All right, kids. So who is the hero of this story? (laughs) Wait, what's that you say? The one who became a prostitute for one day, specifically to entrap her father-in-law into impregnating her? Why, yes, she's the hero. Oh, man. Have you ever been in a situation where there was an argument And you heard your friend's side of the story, and you immediately thought, man, that other person is such a jerk. I can't believe they acted that way or said that. But then later, by some chance encounter, you get to talk with that other person, and you actually get to bring up that argument that they had with your friend. But as they begin to explain their side of the story, all of a sudden, you start thinking to yourself, wait a second, my friend didn't explain it to me that way. They didn't tell me that part, and all of a sudden you've gained this information that you didn't have before, and it completely changes how you view the whole scenario. Well, doesn't it feel like with Genesis, there's just a ton of information that we just aren't privy to that would somehow make so much more sense of it? Well, if you feel like that, I think your intuition is completely correct, And I've loved how our podcasters and the Sunday messages have unearthed a lot of context and clues hidden in the culture of the day and surrounding the original author and the audience that really shed important light on how we are to understand this book and its cast of characters and crazy shenanigans they get into. But here's the piece of information that I learned while looking into this story that really changed how I looked at it. When Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, several hundred years after the events of this book, the Israelites honored and practiced a law called the Levirate Marriage Law. I'll just quote it out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother, so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. All right, so... Evidently, one's inheritance and legacy and blessing was so tied into progeny in this day and age, and this was valued and important to both men and women, that God created a system whereby a widow would be honored by carrying on the family name by her husband's brother. Let's just say gifting her a child. That's not great language for this to describe what's going on. 
But in that culture, it, it did somehow give women a certain dignity, and it also protected them from being marginalized and particularly vulnerable. Widows, especially ones without kids, were incredibly vulnerable to all sorts of things um, in that day and age. So that's a helpful piece of information. And when we go back to our story and we find out that Ur was evidently straight up evil, so God snuffed him out, Onan then seeing his chance to be the benefactor of not only his own inheritance, but the firstborn's inheritance that was due to Ur, he just decided to eliminate his competition before it even starts. Because if Tamar has a son by Onan, that child is considered Ur's, and therefore that child would receive the firstborn inheritance from not only Judah, but also Onan. So Onan fixes this problem in a really cruel fashion to Tamar. So God takes his life too. (coughs) Here we get into a really ugly, hard issue that we scratch the surface on uh, with Noah, and that's the issue of God killing people. And I just don't have even time to get below the surface on this, but I wanted to recognize that this is, in fact, a huge problem. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ways in which godly people and scholars have tried to explain what's going on here. But at the risk of saying something as trite as, well, you just got to trust, let me tell you where I go when I'm confronted by sticky issues like these. I completely and wholeheartedly trust Jesus. And Jesus is our fullest revelation of God's character and heart and purpose and activity that we have. He's not the complete, there's more of God uh, that's yet to know, but he's the fullest of what we have. And Jesus completely trusted his father and is one with the father And Jesus didn't allow for us to have any kind of a concept that the God of Genesis is in any way different than the same God that Jesus represents and is, in fact, one with. Therefore, um, whatever is going on in this troubling passage, I trust Jesus and the understanding that he gives me and that somehow God's character is not evil and that he's not less than powerful or less than good. So I hope that's even a little bit helpful to you, even though I know it's pretty superficial. But I am kind of pushing that trust button. All right, so let's get back to the story. We know Ur is evil. Onan is pretty much no better and is completely selfish. And then we find out that Judah is also completely self-serving and conniving himself. He was all in on getting rid of Joseph in the last chapter, but he wanted to stop short of murdering him. He gets points for that, I guess. So he convinced his brothers to sell him into slavery instead. I don't know how much better that is. And here he is, willing to let Tamar live out a life of seclusion and marginalization and possibly shame in order to protect his youngest son from the same fate as his older brothers. Now, here's one more piece of information that was really helpful to me. We actually have Hittite law codes from ancient Mesopotamia that have a form of Levirate marriage code in them as well, only 
It's different from the Hebrew or the Israelite uh, Levirate Marriage Code in that instead of being the brother's duty to give the widow a child, it's the father-in-law's duty. So first of all, try not to import this information into today's world because you will for sure blame me for losing your breakfast all over the dashboard on your way to work. But instead... This tips us off that Tamar was simply following the law codes for that land at that time, but she had to be somewhat sneaky about it to trick her father-in-law into doing what was considered the right thing. So when Judah at the end confesses, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah, he's not off his rocker, and in fact, his own selfish, self-preserving, conniving character is exposed, and he just admits it. Here's where I want to land, though, for today. Tamar, the underdog hero, is a perfect example of how God's heart is to protect, to elevate, to give voice to, and to look out for those who are left vulnerable by unjust laws and corrupt, self-serving and even just sometimes oblivious people. Tamar gets honored and honored uh, by being mentioned in Matthew chapter 1 as a mom in the line of King Jesus. So my thinking goes straight now to anyone who is even listening to this podcast that might find themselves on the short end of the stick. You're feeling powerless in the face of your circumstances. You're being held down by a lack of resources or power or unjust societal rules that somehow mean that your voice doesn't count. You're maybe in an actual legal dispute and you feel like the system is stacked against you and you'll never get a fair shake. You feel like whoever's in authority above you, whether it's a boss or a parent or whoever, is just being completely unjust and not reasonable. Here's what we hear through Tamar's life. God is for you. Your cries are not unheard. Your broken heart and misery are not going unnoticed by the God of the universe. Your pain and even suffering will not be pointless and for no reason at all. Because the God who exonerated Tamar is the God who has exonerated people over and over and over and over again through history. History in the Bible, as well as countless millions not in the Bible. And this God is for you. Lord, I just have this feeling that some of us needed to hear that again. Or maybe even for the first time. But Lord, I would ask that beyond hearing it and knowing it intellectually, that you, Holy Spirit, would apply that to our heart, that we would experience you as our defender, our shield, our voice, our strength, the one who has our back and knows where we're at. May we get to see you act on our behalf 
And I know your timing is way different than our timing, and that can be a frustration in and of itself. But Lord, we just continue to cry out on behalf of those who feel very powerless in the situations we find ourselves in now. Hear our prayer. See our plight. See how it's just what's happening is not right, and it's completely unfair and unjust. And we ask that you would come and intervene and make things right, knowing that your heart is always for the underdog. So I thank you, and I look forward to how you're going to answer those prayers personally for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.